Hello and welcome to Behind the News. My name is Doug Henwood. Two guests today, no surprise there. The education journalist Jennifer Berkshire will talk about the state of the school reform movement as Trump and DeVos leave, but the right pushes its sinister agenda at the state level. And activist and organizer Kate Sykes will tell us about some surprising election victories in Portland, Maine. Before the interviews, a few words on the economic situation. The summer recovery from the spring collapse looks to be cooling along with the weather. Retail sales rose just 0.3% in October, by far the smallest gain since the recovery began in May. The employment numbers for October were a similar story, fat, though steadily diminishing headline numbers that can disguise the fact that we're still in a deep hole. We've recovered just over half, 55%, of the jobs lost between February and April, 12 million regained out of 22 million lost. Among the sectors that have regained the most are retail and bars and restaurants, both important sources of employment but mostly low wage, and vulnerable to renewed losses as virus cases soar. There seems to be no good reason why people should be dining indoors, but the authorities mostly don't agree, at least for now. Government employment hasn't shown any signs of recovery as strapped states and localities cut spending, a process that shows no sign of reversal. Non-federal government employment fell nearly a million between February and April and is down another 350,000 since. Free market types scorn government jobs as a waste, but public sector workers provide essential services and the jobs are normally stable and decently paying, accounting for 15% of total employment. There's almost no chance that Mitch McConnell will allow any bailout package for state and local governments even to come to a Senate vote, much less passage, assuming Republicans continue to control that plutocratic body. The number of people applying for unemployment insurance benefits rose by 31,000 last week, the first increase in more than a month. Of greater long-term significance on the unemployment insurance front, two of the special pandemic unemployment insurance programs, Pandemic Unemployment Assistance, which provides benefits to workers outside the traditional system, like freelancers and the self-employed, and Pandemic Emergency Unemployment Compensation, which provides 13 additional weeks of benefits for those who have exhausted their regular benefits, both will expire at the end of the year. As of October 31st, over 13 million people were drawing benefits from these programs. Extending them would require congressional action, which is almost certain not to come before early next year, and given Mitch McConnell's evil predilections may not ever come, meaning over 13 million people will find a significant lifeline cut in a matter of weeks. And as I've pointed out before, record numbers of people are exhausting their regular unemployment insurance benefits, over 3 million in September. The reason? Long-term unemployment is rising, and people are simply running out their benefits. With the worsening of that long-term unemployment picture and COVID-19 infections also rising to record rates, the evaporation of unemployment insurance benefits, supplementary and regular, is going to throw millions of households into crisis. Millions have already been hammered by the expiration of the $600 a week supplemental benefits, which expired in July, and those one-time $1,200 checks are a fading memory. The recovery in retail sales I mentioned earlier was supported to a very large degree by such payments. Those are now either gone or about to disappear. This could be an ugly winter. Now on to school reform, a name for all the market-driven initiatives that have transformed public education over the last few decades. Driven by right-wing ideologues with the assistance of hedge fund Democrats, we've seen the proliferation of charter schools and moved to shift public funding to private and religious schools. Here to report on the state of these things is education journalist Jennifer Berkshire, co-author along with Jack Schneider, of A Wolf at the Schoolhouse Door, The Dismantling of Public Education and the Future of School, just out from the new press. Berkshire and Schneider also are the co-hosts of the education podcast, Have You Heard? Jennifer Berkshire. Well, there seems to be a lot of motives behind ed reform or whatever we're calling it these days, especially coming from the right. They want to save money, break unions uh, for the right, do damage to the Dems, partly by breaking unions, undermine the public sector, um, both uh, in reality and ideologically, uh, promote right-wing Jesus indoctrination, steer contracts to their friends, indoctrinate, make money. How do you sort it all out? What is What are the driving forces behind this urge to uh, dismantle public education as we know it? 
Well, it is kind of amazing how, like, even when you go through that long, jumbly list that you just did, how sort of consistently they've ha- they've had all those balls up in the air, the air over the years, right? That like they've always had a million different targets: um, cutting costs, drinking government, making a buck, um, and then the just the sort of fixation on on making school more religious. And I think what's so interesting about the moment that we're in now is that we've been so focused on the Democrats. And the Democrats seem to have forgotten the Republicans' original aims. My co-author and I talk about this in terms of a treaty, right? That the uh, in the 90s, you really see the Democrats and the Republicans agree to uh, the equivalent of a, of a treaty where the Republicans will give up on their aim of making schools religious and the Democrats will uh, agree to give unions the cold shoulder. And instead, everybody will agree on charter schools. And so we fast forward a few decades and the Republicans never lost sight of that original goal. And suddenly it's back in absolute earnest at every level you can think of. They're figuring out ways to steer taxpayer money to religious schools. And the Democrats who thought that they really had this bargain are kind of whiplashed, right? Like they, they really, if you're an education reform Democrat right now, you don't know what to do. Yeah, they've really lost influence within the party, haven't they? Yes, I would say that they have lost influence within the party. And that's for a few reasons. That it isn't just that there's this cohort within the Democratic Party that's really passionate about, say, charter schools, right? That the the cohort that is the most passionate about weakening unions also happens to be the group that does not want to see aggressive redistributive policies. And as inequality has gotten more extreme and the policy agenda of the Democrats has warmed towards redistribution, it's gotten harder and harder to make the case that really took hold in the Clinton era that we're just going to, you know, we're going to bank everything on education, right? Like that's the learning is going to be the new pension, as I saw quoted in a Thomas Friedman column a couple weeks ago. And so it's not that there aren't still all these hedge fund Democrats who are wild for charter schools. They're still there. Democrats for education reform is still you know, a wash in cash. But the argument has gotten harder to make. Okay, we've just uh, gone through a period, um, presumably now ending, <laughs> if all goes well, in which the evil Betsy DeVos was the uh, Secretary of Education. What did she accomplish uh, in her four years in the job? So we have a, a piece coming out soon where we argue that Betsy DeVos's real legacy is going to be in terms of what she broke. She single-handedly really shredded that treaty that I mentioned at the start, that when she was sworn in, there was still this agreement, often with these very unlikely bedfellows, that you would have big city mayors, civil rights groups, moderate Republicans, and everybody was on board with the same agenda. And that is that we would weaken teachers unions in the interest of the kids, that we would expand charter schools, and that we would would be all in on this agenda of accountability. And this is where you really measure the success or failure of schools by their their test scores, their standardized test scores, and that the, you know, you would keep extending that. So during Arne Duncan's tenure, for example, you start to advocate for evaluating teachers on the basis of the extent to which they're able to raise test scores. Betsy DeVos comes in. She does not give a damn about any of that stuff. She likes expanding charter schools to the extent that it weak, they weaken teachers unions. Um, that's really the story of Michigan, um, where, you know, she was was all in on on school choice as a way of weakening the union, as a way of kneecapping the Democratic Party. Um, but this larger agenda of expanding choice and you know rig- and rigorous accountability for schools, she doesn't interested in any of that. And so, in the last few weeks of her term, one of the things she announces is that they're going to start allowing religious groups to apply to open charter schools, which is totally at odds with what the Democrats thought they were about. And so, we're going to come out of this period, and it doesn't frankly matter who the next. Secretary of Education is that, you know, that agreement is 
is now fundamentally in tatters. And what you're going to see at the, the state level is really like a full steam ahead DeVosian model. And she, I, one of the few people, were there any others, who uh, served throughout the entire Trump uh, administration as a cabinet secretary? Um, was it just because Trump doesn't care about education or is she doing his bidding? She just stayed out of his way. Do you have any understanding of her longevity? Yeah, I mean, I thought she was wildly underestimated from the start, right? That people got the impression because of her disastrous confirmation hearing that she was a lightweight. But if you knew anything about Michigan, she's not a lightweight at all. She was a leader of the Republican Party. Her family has, you know, has funded the Republicans there when they enacted right to work in Michigan, you know, the the birthplace of the UAW during a lame duck session. Uh, Betsy DeVos was down there, you know, on the the floor of the state house, right? Whipping the vote. So she's a fundamentally political animal. My sense was always that Pence was the one who who recommended her. Um, he's very close to Betsy's brother, Eric Prince. Well, yeah, Pence was their, their ambassador uh, to uh, the Coke Network and all the, the serious right wing crowd. Absolutely. And she is right there in the middle of it. And I think that if you're, if you're an ideologue, the job she was doing had to be pretty miserable, right? That like, you know, you just travel around and people hate you. But her, she continued, she made a lot of progress at the state level, right? In expanding school vouchers um, and the things that she really cares about. So I think the combination of Trump not really caring about education until he did, right? In the waning days of the campaign, he talked about public schools as centers of indoctrination a lot, um, and she was right there with that, too, right, that she would show up at all these conferences, whether it was turning points or, you know, any of the big sort of right wing gathering spots. So her, you know, her vision was very clear and this enabled her to carry it out. Well, let's take this back because this is a culmination of a decades long process of uh, agitation coming from the right. Uh, as Nancy McLean shows, the, for example, the rebellion against Brown versus Board of Education um, really helped drive a lot of libertarian politics in the 50s. And a lot of that was around schools trying to avoid the desegregation of the public schools. So how do you trace the origin of this movement going back decades? We are so used now to thinking about virtually everything that happens in American politics as, you know, being basically the end product of angry, you know, industrialists who got angry during the New Deal and stayed angry. They have nursed grievances all these years about the amount of power that the state had, about the strength of unions, and have systematically tried to figure out how to wrest that power back. And Jane Mayer and Nancy McLean did such an amazing job of, of showing how that's unfolded. And I think what we try to do is argue that, you know, it's not a coincidence that these same people are, you know, that their primary focus is always on education. Um, we did a great interview on my podcast a couple years ago with Chris Leonard, who wrote the book Cokeland. And he was telling us that at one point he interviewed um, somebody who was high up at Alec and asked them about the Coke's main priority. And instead of the number one thing for them being like deregulation or, you know, making the oil gush, it was education, right? That they understand that. It's the top budget expense in every state. And so if your goal is to free rich people from the burden of taxes, that's what you look at. And then the other thing is that like really early on post New Deal, they are obsessed with schools as not producing kids who are adequately or sufficiently capitalist. This is something that Kim Phillips Fine writes about, about in her fantastic work. And that's another thread that you really see carry through all these decades. And so you have this initial resistance after Brown v. Board with this surge of segregation academies and, and the right figuring out like, oh, this is how we're going to break the compact between families and schools and get parents used to paying for education themselves. And then you have this age old resistance to paying taxes and then lots and lots of creative ways to get around that. And then what we argue is that what really changes over the years is not the vision. It's that the Democrats start using the same language and so then sort of inure us to how radical the vision is. The Reagan administration produced that famous report about the rising tide of mediocrity. That was going to sink us all, which I guess, you know, you can sort of 
the modern part of this movement got going then. What did the Reagan people accomplish? That's what's so interesting is that they really didn't accomplish very much. So Reagan rolls out a voucher plan. And what's to me is so fascinating is that it's identical to Betsy DeVos's vision. She calls hers dif- uh, a different name. She calls hers education freedom. But it's the exact same vision. And the vision is that you give some portion of the money directly to the parents. And people reacted during the Reagan years, you know, they really saw this as a, as a threat to public education. And at the time, you know, that was kind of a death knell. The voucher plan died and they had to back off of it. And so 30 years later, it emerges almost from, as though from amber, which I, I thought was so, you know, so interesting. And that what's changed is that the Democrats basically embrace the Reagan line. And so here we are now all this time later, and you hear all sorts of people now saying, just give the money to the parents. And during a pandemic, that means essentially that schools that are closed would never reopen, right? Um, But you hear all these groups like Heritage that see this as their once-in-a-lifetime opportunity to get parents who are frustrated with the quality of remote learning or just unsettled by the pandemic, get them to think of, you know, as the money belongs to them and they should be able to do with it whatever they want. And that was basically the, the the vision that Reagan tried to roll out in, you know, in the early 80s. And that was frankly, you know, a big dud. Now, these people um, believe themselves and try try to spread the perception that any idiot can be a teacher. It's not very complicated. We've all been to school. Therefore, we know how to teach. (laughs) Of course, it's a lot more complicated (laughs) than that. But how important is that to, to their strategy? Oh, that's hugely important. And so all you have to do is go to one of these states where the vision has really taken full flight. And my favorite place to go is Arizona. And there, the model that is really taking off during the pandemic is um, is a, a homeschool where the teacher isn't actually a teacher. They're, they're just called a guide. And anyone can run one of these out of their house. So you, Doug... Could you could operate one of these homeschools out of your house and you would have you would be a guide for, say, 10 kids and the kids just learn online. You don't require any training. You don't require any degree and you're paid uh, per head and the pay is really low. It's only like a few dollars per head. And so the salary maxes out at if you have a full complement of kids, it ends up being something like twenty four thousand dollars a year. And so you can really see like there, you know, they when we talk about schools being Uberized or teachers being treated like gig workers as though that's a real problem. But if you're an edupreneur and your goal is to deregulate, to lessen the tax burden um, and to return power to parents, you look at something like this and you get very, very excited. I'm speaking with Jennifer Berkshire, co-author of A Wolf at the Schoolhouse Door, just out from the new press. They always talk about returning power to parents. I believe, you know, this is certainly was Milton Friedman's original point when he wrote that essay in, what, 1955 that proved so, so influential. But you have to be an informed consumer. What do parents actually know about choosing schools? It's pretty complicated stuff. So this is kind of the amazing thing. And, you know, it's hard to talk about this stuff without making it sound like you're thing all over parents. Um, but there is this kind of fundamental misunderstanding at the heart of the market argument. And part of it is that, you know, parents know their own kids really well, but they don't necessarily know about schools. And so what happens is that the vision ends up making parents incredibly vulnerable to advertising. And so if you go to communities where the vision has really taken full flight, you'll see that, you know, like there's somebody out there who's appealing directly to, say, your son by offering a new iPad, right? If you sign up for this school. And unlike pharmaceutical ads, educational advertising isn't regulated. So you can say absolutely anything. So you see how the sort of vulnerability is is built right in. But I think you would also be surprised. We just take for granted that that sort of initial deal made back during the founding years of the country, that the state was going to play a key role in the education of kids, There are millions and millions of people who just do not buy that. That was a bad deal and that even things like compulsory education were a real mistake and that it's got to be left up to the parents 
to make all of the decisions and then take some portion of their per pupil funding and spend it on whatever learning options, as they call them, because even talking about a school is too confining, make all those decisions themselves. Now, you mentioned vouchers, which uh, if uh, they're used to steer public money to religious schools or technically unconstitutional, that is becoming rapidly a a mere technicality. But uh, they've devised all these insane systems that sound like Google tax avoidance strategies to uh, repackage vouchers so they pass constitutional muster. Could you talk about what they're doing to um, get public funds into religious schools? Yeah. So um, we still have laws on the books um, in most states up to the present, right? These is, uh, they're called Blaine Amendments, and basically they, they prohibit states from funding religious schools directly. The Supreme Court has been on a steady sort of streak towards weakening that, and there's a long line of cases coming up. This is going to be part of Amy Coney Barrett's um, purview, right? To, to keep um, chipping away at that wall. But in the meantime, you had all these people at the state level who were very frustrated by this ban, and so they set about trying to figure out like, well, what are some ingenious workarounds that we can come up with? And so they're often referred to as neo-vouchers. And the idea is that you figure out a way to give the money to the parent directly. And that way, it's not the state that's funding the religious school. And if the parent wants to spend the money at a religious school, then that's just fine. And then where things get really kind of queasy is that there are these elaborate sort of reward systems in place so that a corporation or a very wealthy person could make a donation to a, usually it's a nonprofit tuition group. Um, These are huge in Florida and Arizona, and then they get, uh, you know, up to 100% reimbursement. And so they're, you know, it's a huge uh, tax reward. And then at the same time, it's not free money, right? All of this ends up coming out of the, comes out of the state's general coffers at some level. It's not just not going directly to religious schools. So yeah, when um, when I interviewed somebody from um, the Tax Policy Foundation about this, they were just shocked. They described it as money laundering. And what happens to students who are um, not uh, necessarily very well positioned? For example, uh, kids with disabilities or uh, kids, uh, students of color who may be discriminated against. What what does this uh, privatized universe uh, uh, do to them? Well, so the whole point of expanding this stuff is that it's a regulation-free zone, right? And so the things that are so expensive about public education are things like, you know, spending money on kids with special needs, If you're a parent in Florida, for example, and you end up using a state voucher to go to a a private school, you sign away your the rights that you have, your um, your rights under the under the federal law. Right. And so the whole idea is that there is no law. You're in a regulation free zone. There's no um, you're just you're a customer. And so the way that you indicate your displeasure is by voting with your feet, right? That you can call and complain the way that um, you might complain if your Comcast service is is bad. Yeah, good luck with that. <laughs> exactly, exactly. And so um, we write about, you know, parents who run into trouble in Florida and discover that there's no, you know, like if you try to call the state, the state's not responsible, right? There's no longer any public entity that oversees this stuff. You're in the marketplace. By design, it's unregulated, if you talk to parents in, in places where this agenda is really spreading fast, um, there are all sorts of horror stories because it's in the interest of schools to choose kids who come fully prepared and cost the least to educate. And so if that means that if you're a parent with kids who who are behind or have special needs, people aren't necessarily that interest in your, interested in your custom. So what can we expect now if- uh, from a Biden administration. I know they'd be speculating wildly, but let's do some wild speculation. Will things change uh, from, from the Betsy years? So the first thing you have to pay attention to is what's going to happen in the states. And there were a lot of states on election night that things did not go well if you were a Democrat, right? There were states that suddenly have trifecta, Republican rule, but the Republicans consolidated their power in a lot of state houses. And what you're hearing already is that they are going to make the case that this is a validation of their agenda for privatizing and defunding and dismantling. And then the other thing that you're starting to see really dramatically is that there's this hostility 
towards higher education and increasingly towards public education among GOP lawmakers. Um, there's a uh, new, a rising obsession with patriotic education. You heard Trump talk about this a lot. Um, I just saw a story yesterday in Mississippi where the governor rolls out his new budget. He ran a year ago on raising teacher pay. That's gone. Instead, he wants to spend $3 million on patriotic education as, you know, sort of a bulwark against leftist indoctrination in the schools. So we're going to be seeing a lot of this stuff. And when I say that, you know, it's, you know, that's why the Biden's pick for Secretary of Education, while symbolically very important, the real damage is going to happen at the state level. And I'm looking for that to intensify. One of the things that happened during the, these decades of educational reform has been a somewhat increased role for the federal government, uh, which in, in an area that used to be very state or especially local. Do these expanded federal powers, can, can a, a Biden um, secretary of education do something to reverse these changes or is it pretty much in the state's hands? It's pretty much in the state's hands because that's where all the money comes from, right? That's why all the action is at the state level. And so when you look at what Betsy DeVos tried to do as far as her, you know, getting her education freedom vouchers through Congress, she failed miserably, right? Again and again there and largely was undermined by people within the Republican Party, you could see something along the lines of what Obama did with with race to the top, but there's that triggered such backlash. And then the you know, I think what's really interesting is that if you go down a list of democratic policy objectives, like if I listed a topic, you know, um, energy, uh, you would know Im- immediately what the progressive platform was. But about education, that's just not true. And so the, you know, the Biden people come in and they, they have, you know, they want to spend a lot more money. They want to be more of a, you know, they want to support teachers. They've uh, made some noise about supporting efforts to integrate schools, which DeVos was quite hostile to. But other than that, it's sort of like, well, what, you know, even, even they have the bully pulpit and they have a sizable pot of money to work with. But what is the the Biden agenda? And it's really unclear if you have the education reform people weakened and you have the right driving policy at the state level. It's just unclear what a what a Biden administration is even going to be able to do. Well, this is one of the problems of the Democratic Party is they're really lacking in any kind of positive agenda or vision. Yeah, absolutely. And I think for education, it's more, it's, you know, it's more profound than that. Let's go back to the Clinton years. And you really see this, you know, they become obsessed with education. Clinton talks about it all the time. And it's what it's the he ran against the teachers when he was in Arkansas, right? Absolutely. Like they very they were intent on weakening the power of the unions as a kind of dominant constituency within the Democratic Party. And with Hillary right by his side all the way. Absolutely. Absolutely. And we were done with the New Deal. We were done with redistribution and what was going to be our answer. And the U.S. had always been an outlier in that, you know, instead of a robust welfare system, you know, we banked, we put it all in the schools, right? Like the school, the schools are are what's going to deliver services to kids. But then that's also going to be your ladder of opportunity. And so you see this get sort of more and more ridiculous during the Clinton years. And I, you know, I really blame them for the situation that we're in now, where half of the country feels entitled by virtue of the fact that they have college degrees. And it's actually less than half, right? It's 35%. And then the remainder of the the country feels looked down upon and sneered at. And so much of this has to do with the fact it's our obsession with education as the only economic platform at, you know, at the same time where kind of access is rationed. It's a disaster. How do they get away with this agenda? Polls show people like their own local schools. They like their kids' teachers. Yet there's this widespread perception that the educational system is a wreck. How does this happen? So there are a few things going on here. I'm fascinated by this because I, I like to travel around to these rural areas and, you know, that people cannot wait to show you their school. And um, and then, you know, I would go to these places that are just like the reddest counties in Wisconsin. And, you know, they all, you know, they go and they voted for Trump in 2016, something like 75 percent went for Trump. And they also voted to raise taxes on themselves to pay more for their local school and to pay more for things like, you know, an art studio, 
and to rehab the library, right? Things that, that you wouldn't think of. So what is it? What is that disconnect? And people have all kinds of answers. So one is just that, that the people they vote for, there isn't, they don't have a clear enough sense that once they elect them, they're actually undercutting their schools. But I think what's sort of more ominous is that you are starting to see the polarization that affects so much right now. You're starting to see support among Republicans for public education wane. If you go to a place like uh, like Arizona, they talk about public schools in a kind of QAnon way. So, you know, the teachers are grooming kids for sex trafficking and Sharia marriage. And you think, my God, like, who who believes this? And the answer is that for right now, a lot of people don't. They cannot make the connection between their fourth graders teacher and this alarmist vision that they're hearing. But as we see the party take, as we see it transform in these Trumpian times, I, I really worry about that. Yeah, well, it's always somewhere else, I guess, is the problem. But you can also uh, understand uh, their willingness to raise taxes of themselves to improve schools is, you know, at least they're not giving it to black people. That's obviously a big issue, the way that the way that we fund our schools. But, you know, I even see hopeful signs there that if you look at polls, that people are deeply, deeply uncomfortable with the inequity in public education. And so, you know, there was a poll in Massachusetts that came out a couple of years ago that that people in the wealthiest districts said that they would be willing to do, they would be willing to have a little less so that people in the poorer districts could have more. And, and you see that in, in polling, you see it throughout the South. So I know I am a bit of a Pollyanna and, but I do believe that there's something to work with there. Yeah, I wanted to uh, force you to end on an obligatorily um, cheerful note because, you know, it's easy to get, uh, caught up in gloom. So is, is there hope for the public schools or are they doomed? Well, so I've always been so hopeful that, you know, that even in the most divisive times and with, you know, in the most divisive places, that people rally around their public schools. You know, those were some of the few bright spots on the map for Democrats um, during the on election night, right? That if you look at Arizona, Arizona's gotten a lot of attention for, you know, it's turning blue and people think that that's a response to that hardline immigration policy agenda that was rolled out there during the last few years. But it's also, it's not a coincidence that Arizona is at the very center of the nuttiest attempts to dismantle education, real education extremism. And people look at that and they think it's crazy and they voted against it. And that, you know, like that's part of what made Arizona blue. And we should take from that and learn from it. I do worry about what's ahead because I think polarization is, you know, essentially eating all of our institutions and public education is going to be one of them. But, you know, as somebody who really looks for ways to bridge the rural urban divide, I see a lot of promise there. That was the education journalist Jennifer Berkshire, co-author along with Jack Schneider of A Wolf at the Schoolhouse Door, just out from the new press. You're listening to Behind the News on Jacobin Radio. My name is Doug Henwood, back after a musical break.
That was some of Handel's Air from his Sweden D minor for harpsichord performed by Michael Borgstedda. Next, an amazing success story from the recent election, which is now seeming like a long time ago. This from Portland, Maine. Voters in Maine's largest city approved an increase in the minimum wage to $15 an hour, or 18 under emergency conditions like a pandemic, to ban cops' use of facial recognition software, to implement a Green New Deal for the city, and to cap most annual rent increases. Most measures won by wide margins. A proposal to restrict Airbnb-style rentals failed by a narrow margin. How did this happen? Here to tell us is Kate Sykes, a member of the Southern Maine chapter of Democratic Socialists of America and an activist with People First Portland, a coalition that includes DSA, several union locals, housing groups, the Green Party, and Black Power, formerly BLM Portland. The coalition was formed to fight for these ballot measures. Here's Kate Sykes. Good work. I'm really impressed. <laughs> Thanks. We didn't think we'd win a single one of these. Really? Um, wow. I mean, if you had lived through the disinformation campaign that a million dollars of corporate money can muster, um, you would have thought the same thing, too. I mean, it was just mailing after mailing after mailing after robocall after text message. You know, the social media airwaves were jam-packed. And we went into election night thinking there was no chance for any of these. Um, and we sat there and watched the returns come in. And knowing that the the voter turnout on election day would be more conservative and seeing the numbers that night we said to ourselves oh we're in for a big upset here we had no idea well congratulations so let's let's begin by um tell us something about portland what kind of city is it what are the demographics what's been happening there recently what's the general political uh, shape of the city yeah so we're a city of 67,000 people and it is a, a strong working class town. We have a, a working waterfront that's still um, very vibrant. And, uh, you know, uh, unfortunately, we're, we're seeing over the last 10 years that there's been an influx of developer money and, uh, you know, hotels and luxury condos and um, lots of out-of-state money has come in um, and has really changed the character of several areas of the town. Yeah, I was I was there um, a couple of times uh, the summer of 2019 and noted that uh, a lot of that by the waterfront, mostly like the old neighborhood, um, lots of nice restaurants and boutiques and such. So this is yes. this is this these are new arrivals, relatively new arrivals in the city. Relatively new arrivals. The the what people are calling the foodie economy. Um, it has been really strong. You know, lots of um, lots of microbreweries um, and oyster shops, um, that kind of stuff. Lots of tourism coming up from Boston and New York. Um, the traffic has gotten progressively worse over the last several years. Um, and it's also a town that has a strong tradition of referendums. And so it, we actually had a working waterfront referendum that was threatened a couple of years ago by the lobstermen who are losing so much access to their working waterfront downtown along Commercial Street because of development there that they threatened a referendum to basically put a moratorium on all waterfront development. The city manager managed to talk them out of that by inviting them to the table over some uh, pretty high-level decisions. Um, but that is still in their back pocket and something that I wouldn't be surprised if they resurrected if um, things went uh, the other way. So that was kind of, le you know, leading into this campaign, we we had seen that happen and said to ourselves, well, you know, this is this is a possible avenue for, for making some working class uh, gains. How does the city generally vote? <laughs> well, <laughs> it doesn't vote. <laughs> and I think, you know, one of the reasons we, we, we won is that so many people turned out to vote. Um, we've had a couple of real disappointments the last several years. Um, our, our very, very liberal mayor, uh, who actually, I call him a liberal, but he's a DSA member, um, <laughs> was ousted uh, most recently um, by a, a neoliberal new mayor who um, took the reins, uh, mostly because there weren't enough people that turned out to vote in that election. It was a very low turnout um, election. But of course, this was a presidential year, so people flocked to the polls. Flocked the polls. And not only that, but, you know, Susan Collins was up for re-election, too. Oh, so right, that yes. was enough. <laughs> yep. <laughs> it was a twofer. All right. So how did you do this? I mean, what was the strategy? Uh, you said uh, you're surprised by the results, uh, but uh, you soldiered on anyway. How'd you do it? <laughs> um, well, we, we started planning this um, within the, the DSA um, before the pandemic was ever, you know, anything. Um, so we had a, a convention, state convention of uh, leftist groups in January of 2020. And we, um, you know, invited a lot of different 
different voices to the table. We at that time we had a socialist party that was looking to get ballot status. Um, we had some communist reading groups at the lo- local colleges, and you know, just a, a whole bunch of people, anyone we could. We, we invited them to this convention, and one of the breakout sessions was with the electoral committee. Um, and we had, we hadn't had a lot of success electing people to office, and we, we'd had several DSA candidates run. We're a very geographically dispersed chapter because it's the entire state of Maine with most of our membership in the southern Maine area and the Portland area. Um, but we had trouble really getting a ground game of canvassing going like a lot of other chapters that are based just in a city. And so we thought, well, you know, is there something else we could do that wouldn't necessarily require that kind of a ground game or we wouldn't be farming out DSA members to campaigns, which often happens, you kind of lose people to the campaigns themselves, um, and then you get even more dispersed. Um, So we decided to run our own slate of uh, referenda. And uh, so we had this breakout session, um, and we brainstormed, I don't know, 40 40 different ideas for for referenda and thought, ah, we'll run 20 of them. I mean, we really thought we were going to run like 20 referenda, just, you know, because it sounded like a fun thing to do. And then, of course, as we met, more and more, we decided that, that wasn't realistic at all. And so we whittled it down to these five. And so over the course of that time, we we had the, the, the mayor who lost his election um, came in and, and started working with us um, and, and a whole bunch of other people who were just really disenfranchised from the political process and disillusioned um, came in. It was really the first concerted effort that DSA had done to run its own type of political campaign um, that actually you know came from the internal membership. Now, in New York, a lot of DSA people have historically been uh, very good at knocking on doors and doing conventional, you know, old-style canvassing. But the pandemic has changed that. Uh, did you feel constrained uh, doing the door-to-door kind of work? Yeah. So, I mean, the first hurdle was to get enough signatures to get on the ballot. And so that that happened right as the pandemic was was scaring everyone. And there was a lot of uncertainty and no one knew kind of how to navigate that. So it was a really interesting structure test because what we did was we used our own social networks. So we took our DSA membership and then said to those folks, you know, find people that are already in your bubbles and get their signatures and then see if they can find people in their bubbles and get their signatures. And so we didn't do the typical, you know, standing on the street corner and asking strangers. Um, We did a little of that. We did go to the farmer's market. That tends to be a pretty high yield place because it skews kind of, you know, more progressive. Um, But for the most part, we tried to keep all of our door knocking within our own social circles. And we did socially distance. We come to their house because at that time, everyone was really working from home and we were under kind of, you know, that sort of lockdown orders. And so we go to people's houses and we do these socially distanced signature gathering just on the hood of a car, you know. So that was that was constraining. But we didn't actually do a door knocking campaign at all. We did most of our um, education over social media. And the one thing that failed, I don't want to, conf- I want to talk more about the successes, but I do want to talk about the failure was uh, the restriction on Airbnb type uh, rentals. Why do you think that didn't succeed? A couple of reasons. Um, one is that, interestingly enough, the opposition for that was entirely Airbnb corporate. Um, there wasn't a single local don- donor to that campaign. And as we began to research the opposition, we found that they ran exactly the same campaign here in Maine as they have in other cities. Um, so it is a tried and true blueprint that they use for opposing these. They um, they really drilled into the the working class in a way that they they divided the working class by saying, you know, this is how ordinary people are are helping to pay their mortgage. You know, this is going to hurt your neighbors. It's going to hurt small business. I mean, they really just they know exactly how to get people to to vote against this. Um, So that was one. The other issue is that we set a thousand dollar registration fee um, for owner occupied short term rentals. When you really look at the math, that is not unreasonable if you're renting out a room several times a year in in your own home. But for the occasional person who just wanted to do it once when they went on vacation, that is probably too steep of a registration fee. And so looking back in hindsight, I think we we should have lowered that registration fee and we might have had better luck. I'm speaking with Kate Sykes, an activist and organizer with People First Portland. Do you have a problem with, you know, high rents and uh, uh, vacancy shortages? We do. So unfortunately, this is the, honestly, this is the one ballot initiative that if it had passed, it would have almost made the other four unnecessary. We believe that there is at the outside 4% of our long-term rental caught up in short-term rentals right now. So by bringing those rentals back onto the long-term market, we could have almost entirely solved our housing problem without having to build any more housing, which of course would 
lower the the cost of rentals for everyone because that would bring the market prices down. It would also make it so that you know we're not harming the environment by building more buildings. So it's it's really unfortunate that this one didn't pass. Now the local paper, uh, which at the Press Herald, called your win a forceful rebuke of the city's political establishment. Um, who is that political establishment? Is it usual like city developer? real estate guys? Is that who runs the city? Yeah. I mean, we have a, you know, we have a, a council that lives in corporate captivity as most municipal governments do. Um, the, the chamber of commerce has an outsized influence. The developers, uh, you know, routinely donate tens of thousands of dollars to, to their reelection campaigns. We have a city, city manager who's very aggressive with development. Um, and, and really a council that is unwilling to stand up to that. Um, despite the, just constant outcry from the public that things are not going in the direction that we want it to. Now, in your note to me, you said that uh, femme voices and heart-based tactics were key to your strategy. Could you talk about that? Yeah. You know, this is an interesting, it was an evolution of this process. You know, we have, like many DSA chapters, we have a very, uh, a a chapter that skews towards uh, young, white, college-educated men. And we have difficulty getting non-cis men to, to enter the chapter. Um, and find meaningful work there and to find others that think like them. And, you know, we've tried uh, unsuccessfully to start a Femme working group within the chapter. Um, but yeah, a friend of mine uh, in, in Brooklyn DSA said that a friend of his just characterized your typical DSA member as a bearded guy who thinks he's smarter than you. Yeah, that's pretty, pretty accurate. <laughs> um but I love them dearly. I mean, I, you know, I'm I'm just a, a you know I'm a 52 year old woman who has been around the block a few times, and I, I mean that kind of stuff doesn't really phase me. Um, but there are a lot of people who don't like that type of environment and find it very intimidating, and we need to make room for those voices. And this campaign allowed for that in ways that I had not seen before in DSA. You know, we started out with kind of the the same you know working class labor union type. Um, you know, band together, solidarity, that kind of stuff, and, and really kind of like fists raised uh, communication. And we had a couple of of non-cis men in the, um, in the leadership who really pushed back on that and said, you know, right now we're stuck with all of these messages of doom and gloom, and we've got Trump and he's this bombastic blowhard. And, and how do we counteract that? I mean, we don't have a lot of money. We're, we're outspent 40 to one. So how do we make sure that that message, ri- our message rises to the top? And Ultimately, we just decided that if we speak from the heart and we talk about what we love and how and the future that we want to see in Portland, um, that that will create a vision that people will actually want to listen to instead of these, you know, these fear based messages. I mean, you know, everyone's afraid of dying right now. There's all kinds of, um, you know, fears around the economy. So we tried to to really look towards a more hopeful future in our messaging. Yeah, there's that famous quote from Che uh, saying that uh, the revolutionary is driven by feelings of love. We often forget that in our, our our struggle and fight and confrontation. Absolutely. So what would you um, say the lessons are for places, people in other cities um, looking um, to uh, accomplish similar uphill against the grain goals? Most seasoned organizers understand that once you win at the ballot box, that's not the end. <laughs> um, that, you know, you have to go on organizing through the the reactions to that. Um, and so, I mean, I like to say that we've won the hearts and minds of, of the Portland voters. I mean, we won at the ballot box, but we're facing a, a lot of resistance from the city council, the business community and, and developers um, to the point where we expect legal challenges and all kinds of other, um, you know, stalling tactics in the next um, several weeks as we try to implement these things. And so I guess I would just say, recognize that the fight is longer than you think it's going to be and that you have to um, you have to amass, uh, you know, the, kind of the long term um, stamina for, for a project like this. But running against uh, cartoon masculinity of the Trump sort is uh, seems like a very promising uh, strategy. <laughs> yeah. Um, you know, speaking of cartoon uh, cartoon characters, we one of the first things that happened after the minimum wage bill passed was um, I got a phone call from the local uh uh, electricians union that said, Hey, you know, I didn't realize it, but we have a couple of entry rate, entry level, um, workers at the WGME station, which is the local Sinclair station, Fox news, um, who are working at under, under $18 an hour. And so for the hazard pay pr- provision of the minimum wage, they're probably going to get a bump up. And we've been looking in the union for ways to figure out how to, you know, help our entry level workers. And we haven't been able to, so thank you. This is really great. And then not 48 hours later, the city council came in and said, oh, we're not going to implement the hazard pay until 2022. 
you know, which is like, that's not going to hold up in court. But I got an immediate callback from the union saying, this will be an interesting fight between some minimum wage workers and an actual cartoon villain <laughs> at Fox <laughs> News Station. <laughs> yes. Well, and Sinclair, too. Like, wow. Um, and so w- what are your plans for the future? We have a charter commission election coming up in June. And we're really excited about that because this is the place where we can really make structural change to government here in Portland. And so building on the momentum of the of the referenda campaign, we're hoping to put together a platform um, that is built by the people. So it's, we're actually trying to, to do a true public assembly, um, people's assembly process to, to build the platform and then have uh, candidates sign on to the to those tenants. Um, and then we'll people first Portland will back those candidates for for election. We're hoping to piggyback off the the vision of the Rhode Island Political Cooperative. I don't know if you've heard of them, but um, no. they're, they're doing great No, who are they and what do they do? Yeah, so they, they have this really interesting model where they're running uh, slates of candidates as a backed by a political cooperative. It's dues-based, and so they can kind of skirt some of the um, campaign finance rules. So And they've had great success. They've, they won a few primaries this year. And I mean, it's kind of the first step in building a party, right? Building a local party. So yeah, we, we're hoping to have a slate of candidates and, and back them and uh, towards a vision for a, a people first Portland. That was Kate Sykes, a member of the Southern Maine chapter of DSA and an activist with People First Portland. An interesting point I've thought about before emerges from this interview. The public is often more receptive to messages from the left on specific questions, such as these ballot measures, than they are to candidates or more general ideological appeals. With a direct question, the allocation of costs and benefits can be very clear. With rent control, for example, landlords lose and tenants gain. But when you start talking about political philosophies generally, things can get very confused, not least because the level of political understanding in this country is rather underdeveloped. And when you get to candidates, people often respond to personalities or misleading rhetoric and don't have the first clue as to where those candidates stand. That's it for me, Doug Henwood. Let's go out with this, St. Vincent's new cover of an old Nine Inch Nails song, Piggy. I like repurposing the title to direct it towards developers and political establishments, but the reality behind the song is that Trent Reznor meant it as an attack on a former band member he thought had betrayed him. In a gruesome twist, Genius tells me that the song was written at 10050 Cielo Drive, the site of Sharon Tate's murder by the Charles Manson family in 1969. One of the murderous gang, Susan Atkins, wrote Pig and Tate's blood on the front door of the house. On that dark note, till next week, bye. you